2: I sang again as he placed a reed in my hand, and with my
1: Welcome to episode 135 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Joining me today are two guys who outrank me.
2: <laughs>
1: Nathan Gilmore, who is an associate professor of English at uh, Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. I feel like I should be bowing down and kissing his feet.
3: <laughs> I don't know about all that.
1: And uh, a full professor, David Grubbs, at Central Christian College of Kansas in McPherson, Kansas.
0: We're all egalitarian here. We don't have tiers. It doesn't mean the same thing.
1: In heaven, everybody's equal, but uh, you're, you're still superior to those of us on earth.
3: Except oh, okay. in Dante. Yeah, I guess <laughs> that's
1: true. I guess Dante. And in the Bible, right? Because it says the least of these will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So it never mind
0: us yet. you of the sun.
1: <laughs> Before we get into our topic, we do have some listener email. Nathan, why don't you go first?
3: Sure, sure. This is a an email from Jordan poss Dear Christian Humanist, great episode on Cain. When I saw the topic of the new episode in my playlist, I immediately knew to expect two things, and he was right, listeners. The first was Grendel, and Grubs did not disappoint in talking about Beowulf. But the second expectation was Caina, one of the subdivisions of Cocytus in Dante's Hell. And I was surprised that the that in the big jump from Beowulf to Steinbeck it wasn't mentioned. Curious to hear y'all's thoughts on Dante's assignment of Cain-like traitors to one of the lowest possible places in hell, and how that might set him apart. Let's go ahead and take a quick pause there. Yeah, I mean I, that, that's one of those things that I I've, I really should have brought up in that last round the horn bit, but I was I, I was so interested in talking about Baroque painting that I forgot entirely about Dante. So.
0: May Vampire the, the Masquerade. What now? And Vampire the Masquerade, to be fair.
3: Oh, true enough. And and yes, my high school role-playing vices.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the the, the, the uh, pains of being a fox instead of a hedgehog, huh?
3: There you go, there you go. <laughs> anyway, Jordan continues. Uh, I've been meaning to thank you all for lots of good reading over the last year. I've picked up a lot of books mentioned or discussed on the show, including Mark Larimore's biography of the book of Job, which was excellent and amusing ourselves to death, which by coincidence, my father-in-law had lent me right before y'all announced that episode. I blitzed through it in two days. Thanks for the motivation. Just today I finished After Virtue, which I picked up after so many mentions of it on the show. Uh, Danny, if you're listening, hat tip to you. Uh, It's certainly the best book I've read so far this year and has given me lots of food for thought. I quickly skimmed the podcast archive and couldn't find an episode specifically about that book and unless i missed it in skimming i thought i'd suggest a dedicated after virtue episode but if that region has been thoroughly burned over i understand thanks again Jor- jordan poss and a quick ps i keep track of my reading with good reads and was surprised that of all the potential controversial potentially controversial books i've logged on there the one that provoked the most immediate discussion was amusing ourselves to death a number of friends were quick to remi- recommend rebuttals including one called Everything Bad is Good for You, Just a Curiosity.
1: By Stephen Johnson, that everything bad is good for you. <laughs> I have not read that. I read his other book, The Invention of Air. I like him as a pop science writer.
3: Oh, okay. All right. All right. Uh, yeah, I mean, after Virtue, I mean, it do, I, I, and I can't even remember the wonderful metaphor that Grubbs used once for these sort of sources, but uh, it's not its own episode so much as a well that we draw out of to drink from in a lot of episodes. We do talk about that (laughs) book
1: all the time.
3: Yeah, and, I mean, if you want some relatively dedicated discussion to it, you can actually go to the Christian Humanist Profiles episode where I interviewed uh, Charles Hackney about his book, Martial Virtue, Uh, and we actually have a a fairly lengthy conversation about uh, After Virtue and, you know, its influence on the positive psychology movement. So I, I don't anticipate an after virtue episode, uh, <laughs> but who's to say
0: an after virtue clips show.
3: Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. There's a lot in that book that we haven't touched
1: on. You know, that's a, that, that's a, not a long book, but it's a book that covers a lot of ground. I imagine we could do an after virtue episode. That's just on stuff we haven't talked about.
3: Okay. Okay. But so I don't want to get your hopes in. up Jordan. Maybe I should anticipate (laughs) an After Virtue episode.
1: (laughs) We also have an email from a new listener, Kyle. He says, I began listening to your Christian Humanist podcast several weeks back, downloading episodes so that I might listen on my bus ride to work. The crew's repeated encouragement to drop a line and the quality of the show compel me now to write. Your work on the podcast and the obvious joy you take in the conversation broadcast each week have been delightful. I do not pretend to the breadth of learning for which each of you have toiled, but I... But I have enjoyed greatly all the discussions I've heard so far. That's very nice. I never know what to say to compliments.
0: <laughs> Shuffle your feet.
1: I started back at episode one and have, ooh, and have been working my way through
0: them. I'm sorry.
1: He, he must have gotten a little ways into it if he's right again, because I can't ooh. imagine anybody hearing those first few episodes and wanting to talk to us. Um, <laughs> Only lately skipping out of sequence because of my particular interest in some of the topics. Your episodes on sports, carpe diem, and libraries were all exceptional. The psychology episode is probably my favorite so far. Hackney's work is quite fascinating. Regarding the sports episode, I was a little surprised not to hear Jacques Barzun's quote about baseball from any of you. The line from God's Country and Mine is, Whoever wants to know the heart and mind of America had better learn baseball, the rules and realities of the game, and do it by watching some high school or small town teams. There's a whole essay on baseball and how the symbolism of the game pervades America's uh, cultural milieu. He also touches on, as I remember it, the idea that baseball or sport more generally offers the opportunity for intellectual engagement without requiring it, which is probably true, come to think of it. Mm -hmm. I admire Jacques Barzun, but have not read that book.
0: I have not either. And I had not, which is why it was not in the sports episode. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
1: listening recently to the Carpe Diem episode, which, as I recall, is the episode where I announced that I was coming to Crown, just to uh, just to to give you guys some idea of how far back he's listening. Yeah. Um, I kept waiting for one of you, Michael, to mention the Drake song YOLO. You all touched on it more generally in different ways, but I wasn't minding the episode's air date and didn't actually know when the song got big. When I looked back at those things, I had a good chuckle at my own expense. But to be fair, if we did the song, if we did the episode today, I mean, I don't know if we even used the term YOLO. I probably would have talked about that loathsome acronym, <laughs> but I, I still don't know that Drake song. So I know I think three Drake songs, and I don't know that one.
0: Like Sir Francis? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's that's the only Drake I know. Except, well, no, no, no. Paul Drake, the one who does like the the gumshoe footwork for uh, uh for Perry Mason.
1: And if you guys are interested in some sort of pop cultural talk. Danny Anderson's show, The Sectarian Review, will be debuting in the fall. And maybe I'll just switch over to that one. (laughs) Uh, He says, regarding the libraries episode, you missed the chance to mention Montaigne's Tower Library, which I think is a shame. I uh, agree. We should have mentioned Montaigne's Tower Library. What a place to go and die, huh? Uh -huh. But then you'd have had to not mention something else from the, the Solid Gold episode, so I guess you just can't have it all. I hope you're able to keep up the good work and reach other inquisitive ears. Thank you, Kyle.
3: Yeah, from Gainesville, Florida. I I, I realize that that is a gigantic university, uh, but if you ever run into Caleb Milligan, tell him howdy from us.
1: You know who else is there is Natalie uh, Natalie Corey, who is Natalie Ridgewell now.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. From UGA. Mm-hmm. And they're expecting. Man, awesome. what,
1: what a boring conversation for everybody who didn't go to University of Georgia with us, huh?
0: I mean, one, one, one comment. I, I love that he loved the library episode because I forgot we did that one.
1: This happens to me frequently. We get when we get episodes <laughs> from from people who are going back to the catalog. They'll, they'll talk about something I have no memory at all of recording.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> So we, we could have that was your episode too, David. That I know, I know. I hosted. I, <laughs>
0: I, I went. I pulled it. I was like, we did one on libraries. I pulled it up on the on the blog. And I was like, oh yeah, <laughs> that, was I, me. I, 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 that was me.
3: <laughs> <Huh>. <laughs> <laughs> That's great.
1: Uh, we also have a uh, Facebook comment from Logan Hoffman. Do you want to read that, Grubs?
0: Yeah, I'll field it. Uh, Logan Hoffman. This pertains to the Kane episode. This is based on some observations of the first two films of the Alien series, whether or not these are intentional, intentionally there or not, I'm not sure. The Alien films are full of subtext, mostly psychosexual, but nonetheless they have lots of subtext. Yep. The second film in the series, Aliens, has been noted as bearing some similarities to the Beowulf story. The hero slays Grendel, the alien, and then later Mo- must face Grendel's mother, the queen alien. I think there's some other comparisons in the film but we'll just stick to these for the moment dr grubbs made mention of grendel i just don't get tired of that dr grubbs made mention of grendel being a descendant <laughs> of Cain, according to the Beowulf story this is where things began to click in my head in the original film the first victim is named kane played by john hurt he is the one who serves as the host for the alien in a sense he is the one that brings death to the world of the characters on a ship Furthermore, the character Ash, in Holm, refers to the alien at one point as Cain's son. This goes back to the idea of the sins of the father being passed down, the sin, of course, being murder. If you really want to make a stretch, you could compare Cain's touching the alien egg as man-eating the forbidden fruit, but as I said, that seems too much of a stretch. This all might be completely coincidental, and I might be correlating things that weren't authorial intent. Still, it does give one something to think about, am I right? And... Sure. I mean, at at, at the very least, it, it's very difficult not to imagine the 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 touching of the alien egg. At, at least picking up on the iconography of the forbidden fruit of reaching towards the thing you should not touch.
3: Hmm. <laughs> Thoughts? Yeah, I think I can grant that.
0: I mean, uh, uh, odds are, you know, I mean, I, I'm I'm guessing Ridley Scott had read Beowulf. Yeah, so, <laughs> so I, I would not be I would not be surprised to see some of that, but I I, I would have never made those connections had he not done it already.
1: That movie's scary.
0: <laughs> yeah, it is. Which is why the one that I rewatch is Aliens.
1: <laughs> I never saw
0: any of the other ones; just the first one.
3: Really? Yeah. Game over, man. <laughs>
1: I
0: mean,
3: I know that line. Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I enjoy
1: Tom uh Tom What's His Face doing his best Chris Christopherson impersonation in the first one. What is that guy's uh, Tom I keep wanting to call him Tom Bosley, but that would be a very different movie, wouldn't it? <laughs>
0: Father Dowling in space.
1: Uh, you know, uh kudos to you, David, for for thinking Father Dowling instead of uh Howard Cunningham.
0: Well, you know, Father Dowling was the one that that, that I watched, but that's because one of my, uh, my elderly aunts was a nun who loved mystery fiction. And so, yeah, there was no way of evading Father Dowling when I grew up. That and Murder, She Wrote.
1: <laughs> well, another thing there's no evading is the fact that our topic today is not Father Dowling. <laughs> We've already done a detective show, so we'll have to go back and listen to that, although I don't think we talk about Tom Bosley. Uh, instead, we're going to talk about William Blake's two most famous books, uh, Songs of Innocence and Songs of Experience. And they're, they're, you know, they're a match set, so uh, I don't feel too bad doing both of them in one episode. Um, but these two books are about as far as most people are ever going to get into Blake's body of work, unless you count um, the opening poem to Milton Did Those Feet, which becomes kind of a weird nationalistic – nationalist? nationalistic uh <laughs> Wow, reference him. to
3: Facebook conversation.
1: <laughs> uh, anyway, um, because that's as far as most people get, they're, they are surprised and confused if they go further and read his other work and find out there's not a whole lot of adorable children and lambs in it. Um, Nathan, can you talk for a few minutes about Blake's prophetic writings? And, and, and if you can, try to connect it back to Songs of Innocence and Songs of Experience, which have a little bit of it. Uh, tell tell us how he conceived of the vocations of prophet and poet.
3: Sure, I, and actually this was the subject matter for my master's thesis in seminary. So uh, wow. I actually wrote about uh, William Blake uh, and his conception of the vocation of the prophet compared to how Ezekiel self-conceives as a prophet. So uh, this, this is actually quite a nice uh, question until I had to go back and reread part of my master's thesis from 2002 and said, who in the world wrote this junk? <laughs> One of
1: two master's theses that Nathan think. Yeah, yes, wrote indeed.
3: <laughs> but in his poems, especially uh, Jerusalem, a prophecy, America, a prophecy, and Europe, a prophecy, but also in some of his other poems, William Blake develops a fairly sophisticated and, as far as I can tell, mostly original mythology uh, in which there are a basically a, a a sort of set of rival powers in conflict in the world. Uh, and the places where those powers come into play are especially in the social and the intellectual and the political struggles of his own moment. So just to give a quick example, in his poem, America, a Prophecy, uh, we actually have semi-divine figures, and I'm not going to go into the names of all of them because, frankly, I – I didn't prep well enough to keep them all straight, and I put the wrong powers in the wrong places. Uh, but there are powers of order and tradition and of inertia, and they are actually holding on to America by invisible chains that stretch across the Atlantic. And he conceives of the American Revolution uh, not first and foremost as a rebellion of you know, highly educated bourgeois colonists, uh, but rather he views it as a sort of cosmic struggle of freedom, striving to throw off the chains of tradition, inertia, so on and so forth. Uh, he extends this vision all the way to the end of times. He envisions a judgment of the human race that is framed to some extent in biblical terms, but also in terms of you know a very enlightenment-inflected notion of human goodness. In other words, the forces that bind human freedom are ultimately those that are opposed by the inbreaking of a sort of eschatological apocalyptic force of freedom uh so wonderful wonderful stuff i mean it, it rewards months of study uh you know you, you could very easily write a dissertation on it as i'm sure many have uh but as far as connecting it to songs of innocence and experience you know the the highly developed mythology isn't there however Uh, You do get a sense in the movement from innocence to experience that experience brings with it an awareness that there are struggling powers rather than simply benevolent powers and then some sort of mystery beyond the scope of the benevolent powers. There is actually struggle in the songs of experience, which really come into their own and, you know, become just fascinating mythological poems. Uh, when you get to, especially, America, a prophecy. Uh, So, David, I I mean, I'm I'm trying not to eat up 30 minutes talking about this. Are there any, any other high points that you'd want to point to?
0: Not without delving even further into the what are, to me, incredibly baffling... Uh, the, the just the baffling array of of names and cosm you know cosmogonic principles and all the other stuff in his in his prophetic verse that frankly makes me feel like I'm rereading Irenaeus' Against Heresies all over
3: again. <laughs> he does, uh, he does or,
1: create a little world. With, oh with, yeah yeah with yeah. Recurring so recurring characters and uh...
3: yeah and and this just occurred to me. I mean imagine. Uh, The very first conversation you had, and you can pick which one of these you prefer, uh, with a Tolkien person, with a Hunger Games person, or with a Harry Potter person, and all of the names flying at you a (laughs) mile a minute, and you have no idea what in the world they're talking about, that's Blake's prophecies.
1: Except there's no further text to go to that will sort it out for you.
3: Right, All there is is the prophecies. Right. It it is only the conversation. (laughs) There's never a movie that you can watch or a book you can read. (laughs)
0: exactly yeah because this thing is so well conceived in his in in his in his mind and yeah he just sort of takes takes the world and how it works and the he takes all of that for granted right
3: i mean so they're not long poems they're relatively brief but they are just filled to the gills with characters you've never met before fighting battles that make sense on their own terms but you know, I mean, you really do have to read people's scholarship to see how people have guessed at how they all fit together.
1: Right. I mean, I, I remember buying I, I was into Songs of Innocence and Experience when I first got to grad school. I remember buying the Norton mm-hmm. of, of Blake's poetry and designs. And I read very happily through Songs of Innocence and Experience. <laughs> um, and then I got to Marriage of Heaven and Hell, which is easier than the books you're talking about. And even so, it just kicked me down the stairs.
0: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, 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 it's like trying to piece the original Star Wars movies together out of incomplete Lego sets,
3: <laughs>
1: or or out of out of uh, books from the extended universe that you found <laughs> that you found in a dumpster, and most of the pages, most of the pages are smeared.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, or out of the fan fiction. <laughs>
1: which is not to say which is not to say you shouldn't read it. No. But uh if you're going to read it be prepared for it. I like yeah, that I'm, fan fiction idea. It's like Blake writes his own fan fiction of William Blake.
3: Right, but then but then forgets to provide you with the originals.
0: <laughs> well, but but that's a that, that's exactly the kind of thing is that because he he's so, you know, I mean when you when you kind of look at bits of his um you know letters and such like that, you you get the notion that he really does feel like this, like a lot of these ideas were given to him, so mm-hmm. that he is writing fan fiction of a real thing that he has access to, but we don't. And that
1: he he probably can't explain any better than we can, or at least that's what he would report, I imagine.
0: Mm-hmm. Right.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, good thing is we're not going to spend the rest of the episode talking <laughs> about the prophetic books. Uh, the bad news is
0: oh, the, God. the bad news
1: is that the odds are if you've read Blake you've probably read him in what amounts to a translation, which is to say most people read his poetry abstracted from the very interesting and detailed plates on which it originally appeared mm. so so Blake designs these their their drawings and the poems are kind of contained within them. David, mm-hmm. how would you characterize his artistic style and and what role does it play in understanding his poetry?
0: It's it's simply impossible to divorce the two, I think, um, uh, honestly, it, because because he saw he saw them as so integrated and he's he's executing both of them simultaneously. Um, I, I recommend, um, dear listeners, uh, Blake Archive dot org has s- scanned images of. Well, if if you're just looking for Songs of Innocence and Experience, they've got, oh, I, th- I think 12, 15 different scanned electronic ed- editions of, of of different print versions of Songs of Innocence and Experience that Blake himself produced. So that you get to see not only the illustrations that come along with each of these poems, you get to see the variations in the illustrations. Mm-hmm which is which is extraordinarily interesting. So s- such that, you know, I could spend, you know, we we could spend, you know, 45 minutes talking about the picture that goes along with one of these poems and then find out that he actually executed three or four different versions of the same thing. Mhm. So and 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 so he he's he's producing these images to be to be seen alongside the poem as it's read. Um the uh which uh real, real real quickly so that you know, um BlakeArchive.org I think is hosted by UNC Chapel Hill. I believe I believe that's uh that's the university that hosts it, Blakearchive.org. Mm-hmm. Uh also on that website there is a very long uh read read uh, six chapters with a conclusion just on his technique of printing, which I will not go into, uh, except to say uh, he was working from plates, so it was printing. But then he was he was going back and uh, adding in color with watercolors and extra detail so that so that the actual etchings or engravings he actually uses multiple techniques um, to get the print image um the the etching or the engraving is never by itself he's always going back and continuing to tweak it with other details which is why they ha- which is why the uh the visual archive uh the image archive has to include so many different variant versions because he's he's hand modifying every single one you can't look at you can't look at just one um and the term that they use to describe it is illuminated printing um, which really makes a lot of sense it's it's it 's much more like reading a medieval manuscript in which it 's not just an occasional illustration, but in which the text is constantly surrounded by picture right and even the even the quality of the print itself because he 's actually writing the poems on the same prints that the that the illustrations are on it 's not as if he 's setting type he 's mm-hmm. writing it by hand. Right, and so yeah, it's it's very like printed medieval manuscripts.
1: And and so I mean he he's one of the few poets who we know exactly what his handwriting looks like, right? Yeah. I mean, for the most part, for the most part, when you when you see a scan of a famous person's letter, it, it is religious experience is too strong, but it's some sort of personal encounter. If you saw a scan of William Blake's handwriting, if you're familiar with the plates, you would think, oh yeah, that's William Blake. <laughs> But right. that, that means that the if you if you look at the poetry the way it was meant to be looked at in the context of these designs it 's already personal it 's already it 's already like you 're reading a letter instead of a printed material
0: right mm-hmm. um, some things that are typical of his illustrations uh, he he was primarily self taught so he has a very distinctive look that doesn 't um, doesn't have a whole lot to do with what was going on in painting at the time. No, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's a very powerful use of color. Um, he's, uh, he's fascinated by the human body. Um, which every, just about everybody that's fe- that's, that's, that's featured. Um, that's, uh, kind of, that's, a main feature that you can see especially if it's an adult male um it's going to have a completely muscly body um even when it's wearing clothes uh the the frontispiece to the songs of of, of innocence inc- uh, has has a, the image of this flute player who is invoked at the very in the very first poem and it looks like he's wearing super tight long johns it's it's as if it's like one of those muscle
1: shirts from the 90s
0: yes he looks like Superman but it it looks as if Blake initially thought I'm gonna draw this guy nude but then later on said you know what it's a little too early in the book for that (laughs) and then painted some clothes on him I, I I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe people were not cool with with a, with a naked flute player, and so he <laughs>
1: I'll, I'll tell you, uh, gave you know, the dude long johns. Th- that uh, that website has, I- I'm sure, has more naked people than an issue of National Geographic. Uh, Blake yes. uh, Blake loved to paint naked people, but his naked people aren't like realistic in any way, right? I no. mean, they don't. They're, he's not even striving for realism. There, there's something kind of iconographic about his art style. Would you say, yeah?
2: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah,
0: very much so, very much so. I mean, you you always need to be looking for the pi- for the picture to mean something.
1: And you I, you don't you don't mistake a William Blake for anything else. He he did some very famous illustrations of Job. Um, he did some very famous illustrations of. Did, didn't he do Paradise Lost? No, he did Dante. That's what I'm thinking uh, yeah. of. Um, and and mm-hmm. I, I mean, they're they're the ones people show you when you want to look at pictures of Job or or. Uh, uh, or of Dante, but at the same time, I mean, they're very, very William Blake. He does not attempt to disappear into Dante's style or, or the Bible style. It, it looks like William Blake illustrating those things. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. There was also a series of of paintings that he did uh, called uh, the, the the collection was called the Visionary Heads, and. Basically, a a, a younger artist who was very interested in spiritualism and visions and things like that, but couldn't see spiritual entities, uh, asked Blake, who who claimed that he could, to draw some of the things that he saw. And it's it's a whole collection of historical characters, and in some cases, um, allegorical or fictional, or it's 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 even hard to describe. It's it's just. This whole series of bizarre and really interesting portraits, um, the most famous of which is called The Ghost of a Flea, which is a tiny painting that is nonetheless incredibly terrifying because it looks like it looks like Grendel. You know, I would use it. I would use it as an illustration of Grendel. It's just terrifying.
1: And needless to say, when the poetry gets weird, the paintings also get weird. (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. And sometimes
1: before the poetry gets weird, the paintings get weird.
0: Well, mm-hmm. so it, you could read a poem and you're like, man, that's the most pedestrian thing I've ever read. And then look at it with the image that's with it and go, dude, what's going on there? <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, by all means, look up the pictures.
1: Well, thank you. Um, let's, uh, let's get on to talking about the poetry itself. And, and obviously, we're not going to have time here in this episode to talk about everything in these two collections. So we're just going to no. hit some of the high points and then we'll throw some Hail Marys at the end. Um, Nathan, the most <laughs> famous two poems in these collections are almost certainly the lamb and the tiger. And, and those are two poems that can be read on their own, but they also seem to be in conversation with each other. Like a lot of the poems in these collections do. Uh, h- how do these two poems stand in for the collections in which they appear? And what on earth is Blake trying to say with them?
3: Well, one of the common ways to teach this collection is, is to talk about them as sort of a child's viewpoint on what it means to be innocent and experienced. Uh, because even the songs of experience, um, for lack of a better phrase, I mean have a, have a childlike character to them. I mean they are they are the words of someone who is first discovering the hidden and the darkened parts of reality. Uh, So the lamb and the tiger are very often because they're both animal poems. uh, They're paired up with each other. Uh, The lamb is a a poem uh, spoken to a lamb. Uh, It largely uses the vocabulary of, you know, sort of what I think of as sort of catechism or even Sunday school theology. Uh, You know, the... The little lamb is made by God, and the Son of God was also a little lamb, and so on and so forth. Uh, you know, he became a little child, um, a child be thou a lamb, so on and so forth. Um, now, a couple things about it. Uh, one, as you and David were just discussing, the the print of the lamb uh, has one of those very disturbing naked muscle boys on it. Uh, so, I mean, I, <laughs> I, I, I don't know if it would have been this disturbing, you know, there in the late 18th century. But I, you know, while, while you're reading the poem, your eye just keeps drifting down. It's like, no, no. I, <laughs> I've
1: seen shepherds, and I'm pretty sure they usually wear clothes. <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah. Um, now, on the other hand, the tiger, uh, I'll go ahead and start with the art and then go to the poetry. Uh, it is a picture of, I mean... I I'm, I'm looking at it right now and it defies words. I mean, uh-huh. if you look at the tiger from the neck down, it's actually a pretty nice little anatomical study of a large cat's musculature. But then if you look up from the neck, it <laughs> <laughs> looks like he's seen
1: something horrible. <laughs> yes, yes.
3: I and 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 I'm going to I'm going to uh brand myself here as as a uh, consumer of the worst of the internet, but if you've seen the uh Twitter feed Crap Taxidermy, uh that that's what the tiger is from.
0: <laughs> but that may have been the only kind of tiger that he ever saw, you know?
3: That's, that that may be
1: true. Blake is trying to do something uh <laughs> photorealistic. I think it works better if he's uh if, if the tiger is freaked out though. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, it's, like, it's like the tiger took a bunch of drugs and looked in the mirror, and then he's writing the poem. That is, that is the look on the tiger's
2: face.
3: Um, but like the lamb, the tiger is a poem of creation, uh, but the language of creation is very, very different. Instead of the image of God and so on and so forth, uh, the images of creation and tiger are those of a forge. So the tiger is a killing machine in a very straightforward sense. Uh, when the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? Uh, the, the imagery in this poem uh, is that, you know, there is a kind of shock uh, that the same creator who made the meek and mild lamb also shaped this terrible thing with a burning heart and burning eye and so on and so forth. Um, And again, the impression that I get, and you guys can can bounce off of this and and, and tell me a better way to read it if you want. But the language still strikes me as a young young voice, a a child, I I would even say, uh, first starting to articulate those parts of reality that are at tension with and opposing the goodness and the gentleness that one gets taught in Sunday school. I mean, as I. What I, I do you don't, think, I Michael?
1: I, I don't know if I agree with that, Nathan. Okay, go ahead. I, I think I think you have much more of the prophetic language that's going to come into play later in Blake's career, and It's actually come in already because uh, Marriage of Heaven and Hell comes between these two books. Uh huh. Um, but I, I, I think I think the the fourth and fifth stanzas, the one the fifth stanza is the one you read. The other one is What the hammer? What the chain? In what furnace was thy brain? What the anvil? What dread grasp? Dare its deadly terrors clasp? That doesn't sound like a child to me. That that sounds like that that sounds like the voice of the ancient bard that occasionally okay. that occasionally right, recurs right. throughout these poems.
3: That's fair enough. That's fair enough. I, I guess when I read that, I, I sort of you know heard a child you know who has seen a blacksmith shop and assumes that this body must have come from that rather than from. But I I, I can see the prophetic register there as well. So I'll. I'll take that in I'll take that into consideration.
1: You're the expert.
3: Well, I, I but it's been ten years, actually longer than that. Never mind, twelve years. <laughs> well, and well, I didn't treat these poems at all in my thesis. So gotcha.
0: Mm. Yeah. Well, also in the sense of the, the the kinds of prophetic stuff. I mean, because he he he, he tended towards, I don't know, a, a, a kind of. Uh, well a a notion of a of a of a, a sub creator maybe or, you know a, a yeah yeah a, that 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 kind of notion so that when you look at, at 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 the lamb well the one who made the lamb the lamb is is an image of him is an image of himself and and you can you can read the lamb and it and it read very orthodoxly christian but I have a, a really hard time reading the tiger without this kind of section, without this kind of suggestion of a more sinister demiurge, mm-hmm. who whose whose motives and whose character are um, malign. and and that is kind of where it seems to go. So, you know,
1: and, and Blake is, know. of course, not anything approaching an Orthodox Christian. I mean, we're not going to we're not going to talk too much about that in this episode. But if if you've read The Lamb and a couple others and come away thinking that Blake is, you know, Charles Wesley, <laughs> just trying to think <laughs> of another Englishman from around that you time. You got another
0: thing coming. Right. I mean, this, <laughs> yeah. is, th- this, is,
1: this is a man who, in a real sense, invents his own religion.
0: Mm hmm. And writes his own scripture for it,
1: right? And and I, I I I like what you said there, David. I think I think you may be right. This, did he who make the you I, you tend to read? Did he who made the lamb make thee as a question where the answer is yes? But what if it's not?
0: Yeah. You hmm. know what if it's not okay. a
1: rhetorical question? What if well no the he the one who made the lamb didn't make make the tiger, and in fact the the force the benevolent force responsible for all the natural world that provides a mm. uh, comfort throughout these poems is not the force in, in charge of the destructive industrial world that the tiger is strangely connected with. I mm. find it difficult to read the tiger without thinking about the atom bomb, which of course Blake was not thinking about unless he really was a prophet. <laughs> but, but there's that sense, right? Of this, this, this force that's too powerful for human beings to understand
0: Yeah. Well, maybe maybe that's what the tiger's seeing just off the margin of the page is is a mushroom cloud. Well, that's
1: what that's 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 that's, I like the look on the tiger's face because it's like even the tiger is afraid of his own power. Yeah. Uh, Well, another popular poem for anthologies is the version of the Chimney Sweeper. There's two versions of it, but one of them appears in Songs of Innocence, and that's the one that tends to be anthologized. Um, The the poem is proto-Dickensian in its critique of the industrial revolution and its effect on children but the centerpiece is this strange dream that the chimney sweepers have about the afterlife david what can you tell us about that dream uh, <laughs> and and how we're supposed to feel about it because i've struggled with this passage uh for, since i was a teenager it's so strange
0: yeah the after the first cup you know you know it's divided into four line stanzas um and the first one just seems to be general i'm a young i'm a young chimney sweeper and that's terrible and then there's this other kid who got his hair cut because in order to be a chimney sweep and that's pretty terrible too third stanza um little tom dacker who got his ha- his hair cut he has a dream that thousands of sweepers, Dick, Joe, Ned, and Jack were all of them locked up in coffins, black. Um, which their chimney sweeps, and we have the image of we have the image of confinement and of darkness. I imagine that that, that being um, being a boy who was a chimney sweep, you would probably feel like you spent most of your days in a black coffin. Um, so it, it, it seems not. It, That doesn't seem like too much of a stretch for me. And by came an angel, a fourth stanza, who had a bright key, and he opened the coffins and set them all free. Then down a green plain, leaping, laughing, they run and wash in a river and shine in the sun. Then naked and white, all their bags left behind. They rise upon clouds and sport in the wind. And the angel told Tom, if he'd be a good boy, he'd have God for his father and never want joy. Um... I mean, it, it's, it's a kind of eschatological and salvific image, um, the dead being raised up from the graves, um, the image of, of, uh, a uh, kind of a renewed earth, a green plain where those who are washed in the river shine in the sun. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to, you know, cite, uh, several different, uh, kind of biblical, biblical passages to, to, to bring those in, um, you know, among, among them, the Pauline language about shining like the sun in the kingdom of our father. Mm-hmm. Um, except they're naked and they're white because they, they they they've washed themselves on and and now off. And now I have to think about a chimney sweeper and and just how he must feel grimy constantly. Well, that's so that why Thomas washing... to
1: get his hair head shaved, right? Because otherwise the yep. soot'll ruin his hair.
0: Right yeah the, the the notion of the, the the stain that the work puts on puts on you and then this this vision of a future salvation involves washing the stain of the work off um and the the, naked, stain,
1: the stain not of sin but of other people's sin mm-hmm. pushed on you
0: well naked and white all their bags left behind i really i have a hard time not seeing pilgrim's progress alluded to but it's not it's not pilgrim's Paco sin, but <laughs> but the the tools they would have had to carry with them, um, you know the par- the paraphernalia of their trade, and then they rise upon clouds and sport in the wind again. Wind must have been really attractive to someone who stuck down a dark hole all day. Um, and then if you if you'll be a good boy, you'll have God as your father. And then that and then after Tom awoke, he he tells he tells the other boys. And the way that this gets internalized apparently is, is is in the last line if all do their duty, they need not fear harm. So that this so that this prophetic dream of a future in which boy chimney sweeps get to be washed clean and leave the trade behind and have God for their father, because well, in the first stanza this this- this boy whose mother dies, is sold by his father, you know, so that having God for a father well because you're because your own parents are kind of crap um, yeah that the, the this is yeah this is a this is a chimney sweep gospel, but the way to get there is if all do their duty, they need not fear harm, which I imagine a lot of your conflict when you were reading this, Michael, came from that last line.
1: Well yeah, I mean this is exactly what Marx means when he talks about religion being the opiate of the masses. Yeah. It 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 pacifies Tom, keeps him from rising up because he's promised this afterlife in which he will be able to wash in a river and sport in the
0: sun. Well it's in Songs of Innocence, which includes I mean I mean I, I'm you know let's 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 not mince words it, it includes some pretty pretty vapid nursery nursery rhymes nursery rhymesy stuff
1: Oh yeah yeah these are not mm. uniformly great books
0: Right <laughs> But this particular one I have a really hard time reading that last line innocently and I don't it, it, am I am I just a you know jaded 21st century man who looks back well, but but Blake didn't like the Industrial Revolution either, you know. So I, I don't know. Is 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 this a song of experience that somehow slipped through the filter, or am I just reading an innocent song with an experienced eye?
1: And <sighs> a- added to the problem is the, is the fact that Tom's hair is white. Yeah. Right, which is something you associate with age, not with youth.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I, I have never known how to read this. It kind of just, You kind of just oscillate back and forth between, oh, you know, Blake is critiquing the system and this ridiculous dream that it presents versus Blake is honoring the dream, which seems to be very close to what you would imagine as his dream of heaven.
0: Well, I mean, I I do think it's pretty clear just from from reading through this set that Blake wants to give you, Blake wants you, t- Blake wants to communicate that that God, the real God, the good God, the God that makes the Lamb and is the Lamb, loves children. So I don't I don't have a problem. I mean, I I don't find it incredibly unlikely that 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 Blake would see Tom's dream as yeah, you will have God as your father, little chimney sweeps. I know it's crap here. I'm so sorry, but God's going to make this up to you.
3: Right. And also, I mean, an important, uh, I don't know if addition to or twist on the Marxist reading is that, you know, it is not the purveyors of the system. It's It's not the man telling them that, you know, they're, reward is in heaven. You know, it's something that emerges internally, which I I realize if you go in a Foucaultian direction, that's exactly what you'd expect. But uh, it's not the uh, invention of religious myth for the sake of oppression. Mm -hmm. And and this is
1: presented for, you know, as a real religious vision, this angel coming to Tom.
3: Oh, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah.
0: And it it, it, it reads an awful lot. But like, um, it, it reads an awful lot like you know Southern Negro spirituals, in which in which the the, the black chattel slaves appropriate the language of the Exodus.
1: Mm-hmm. And you know it, it's worth it, noting it, who doesn't appear in the heaven of the dream. Anybody oh, yeah. but the children, the, the, the people <laughs> who are forcing them to this labor and who are profiting from this labor are yeah. nowhere to be seen in that heaven.
0: And that's right. backed up by the illustration, which is all a bunch of little, you know, naked boys with God as their father, bending over them. Yeah,
1: I think that's probably his best poem. Yeah, just just in terms of just in terms of how difficult it is to to get a hold of. Mm. But I don't yeah. know. There are there are other there are other candidates for that.
0: It's <laughs> disturbing.
1: Well, uh, one of uh, my favorite poems in Songs of Experience is The Clawed and the Pebble, which seems at first to present this very simple, almost fairy taleish dichotomy between selfishness and selflessness. But every time I read that poem, it gets more complicated and harder to figure out. Uh, Nathan, what can you tell us about The Clawed and the Pebble? And I'm going to be very disappointed if you don't bring Milton Satan into it.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a short enough little poem. I'm going to go ahead and read it. Uh, and this is from the, uh let's see here, Anchor Press, complete poetry and prose of William Blake. So if there are variants uh, and I'm not reading the one that you're looking at, my apologies. The Clod and the Pebble. Love seeketh not itself to please, nor for itself hath any care, but for another gives its ease and builds a heaven in hell's despair. So sang a little clod of clay trodden with the cattle's feet, but a pebble of the brook warbled out these meters meet love seeketh only self to please to bind another to its delight joys in another's loss of ease and builds a hell in heaven's despite uh so yeah i mean there's obviously some uh miltonic overtones there uh you know to rule in hell is better than to serve in heaven and i, I just misquoted that line so my 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 milton dissertation is now void i realize <laughs> uh, but <laughs>
1: good, good thing you have those two master's theses to work with instead
3: yeah there you go there you go uh but then of course you know the parallel line at the end of paradise lost you know uh that there is a a heaven better still within uh than the one that was lost or a paradise better still within golly i really can't quote milton uh but <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell I haven't taught Milton since 2009? Anyway, <laughs> um, so what you've got with this cloud of clay and the pebble of the brook is, on one hand, I mean, you know, your opposition between the angel Uriel in Paradise Lost on one hand, or not Ab- Uriel, golly, I can't get Milton right today, Abdiel in Paradise Lost and Satan in the same uh, one is among the rebel angels but yet remains faithful uh, and remains for the sake of the glory of the Father while the other uh, is in the midst of heaven's court and yet strives against that. Uh, so, I mean, it's it's on one hand, you know, uh, a, a little sing-songy ditty with Miltonic overtones. On the other hand, the nature of the two entities, these are not... Uh, from the same stock, if you will. One of them is a clod of clay and therefore inherently malleable, uh, inherently to be trodden under, as the poem says. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it's something that really retains possibility even when bad things happen to it, whereas the pebble, uh, it's a pebble of the brook. Uh, So it is something that over time has actually been worn away, some of its existence is now gone that once was there, uh, so like Michael says, I mean, the more you examine these lines individually uh, the more complexity sort of emerges there, Michael, I mean what other bits uh, occur to you as as you've, I'm sure taught this poem more than I have
1: I don't know if I've ever taught it actually oh, okay um, Blake is the one who said famously that Milton was on the devil's team and didn't know it.
3: Mm-hmm. And I think
1: that's interesting because you would expect reading this poem that, that Blake would privilege the clod, right? Uh-huh. Because the clod is saying the things we're supposed to say, that love is this wonderful selfless thing. But if if Satan is in this poem, he's the pebble. And besides mm-hmm. that, the clod is called a clod you know which is a which is a nickname for a stupid person although i guess i need to oed that and see if uh see if it always was or if that's a more modern coinage oh i hadn't
3: i hadn't thought about that but yeah that's that's worth thinking about
1: all, and, and I actually read the uh, the way they work a little bit differently. They're they're kind of environmental factors. I, I've always I've always seen the clod. It says the clod is trodden with the cattle's feet. He he's under constant adversity. He's constantly being beaten up. Probably pulled apart. Right? How that's how clods work. They're they're not they're not cohesive mm-hmm. selves. They they kind mm-hmm. of gain and lose as the. As the environment dictates. The pebble, on the other hand, has a relatively easy life for a inanimate object. He just gets to sit <laughs> in the cool, clear, running water. And, and yet that somehow teaches him selfishness. Whereas the clod, mm. who you would think would be the selfish one, right? Because he's the one who's being destroyed constantly. He's the one who's self uh, selfless, not selfish. I can't remember which way I said that before, but <laughs> but it, it it seems to be that if you're if you're talking about an environmental factors in shaping personality, Blake is saying the opposite of what you would expect. It, it's the it's the suffering that makes you see love as a selfless thing, and it's living a life of ease that makes you see love as bringing everybody to you. And and this may fit in with our uh, with our chimney sweeps, you know. Because the chimney sweeps would certainly be the clods in almost every sense of that, especially if we're reading Blake as mocking them even a little bit in that poem.
3: Right, right. And, And this is where, you know, modern hermeneutical practices make poems like this and like The Chimney Sweep just incredibly difficult to get your hands on, right? Because on the one hand, I mean, you want to say, you know, that you should consider it pure joy when adversities of every kind come your way like the epistle to you know from james uh but then on the other hand you do have Karl marx whispering in your other ear that uh such religion is the opiate of the masses so it's one of those things where i i i I have to think that blake is anticipating that sort of thing
1: yeah he's strikingly modern even even more so than the rest of the romantics Mm -hmm. he's he's treated as the first romantic i think he kind of jumps over that He, he uses some of their imagery and his 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 poems match uh, Wordsworth's prescriptions for what poetry is supposed to do, right? It's it's powerful emotions and, and re- recollected in and tranquility and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's it's the language of the people, the very small people in the case of of these poems. But uh, they they don't seem they don't seem romantic in their general outlook to me.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, they seem more sane. I I mean it, it, not 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 to be derogatory but I mean even even in his own day and and for long 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 thereafter blake's blake's mental stability has been questioned.
1: Yeah um, now now they say that his prophetic poems are the result of some sort of mental illness.
3: Ah oh,
0: that's yeah. a pity. <laughs> Which which I I don't know and I you know I'm, I I I'm, I'm not there I'm not there to 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 say that and and, dis, and and or even to dismiss them, even even if that's true, but Blake or not Blake Wordsworth wishes that he could look out at the ocean and and, and hear trite or and and you know see trite or see Proteus frolicking and hear Triton swarm. Blake probably did. That's <laughs> true. It's true. You know. And I do, and I think that makes a difference. Wordsworth wishes to wistfully engage in 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 with with the world in a way that I think Blake just kind of assumed. I mean, he he, he was drawing pictures of people that he saw that no one else saw, you know. Mm-hmm. So that might account for some of it, at least.
1: And he was a nudist.
0: <laughs> well, and. For a while wanted a concubine, but, you know, that's a whole other thing. That was Swedenborg for you.
1: All of this is to say, though, that there's a way <laughs> to read these songs of innocence and experience and to read them very quickly and to read them as nursery rhymes, which they kind of are. I think you could read most of them to children, and, and the children would enjoy them, and mm-hmm. you would enjoy them. But the closer closer you read them, the slower you go, the more you kind of pit one line against another – Mm-hmm. the more you realize these are very, very complicated little poems that only appear to be simple.
0: Right. Yep. Well, I mean, David... This this is, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I, was, I was just going to say that Claude and the Pebble reads kind of like an Aesop's Fable without the moral at the end.
1: Or with two morals, right?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. With two morals and and, and nothing to help you judge.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's it's Kierkegaard, not Aesop.
0: Uh, uh, a ma- yeah, a maxim has just been delivered. Which one is it?
1: Mm. Yeah, it's either or, right? And actually, the the two the two sides of the argument are are kind of the two sides in either or. It's kind of the aesthete and the uh, the ethicist. I think James Rivera has a book on Blake and Kierkegaard, so I can't pretend that I'm doing original work, although I have not read that book. Hmm. Well. David, there are two Imago Dei in the uh, Songs of Innocence and Experience, and they seem to contradict each other, as so many of these poems do. Um, (laughs) What is the image of God, according to Blake, and how how does it manifest in human beings, and what can we make of these contradictions between the two poems?
0: I'm actually going to pitch not two poems, but three at you. Um, the, The two that are most obviously paired... In Songs of Innocence is a poem entitled The Divine Image. And then in Songs of Experience is a, is a significantly shorter poem entitled A Divine Image, which I think is clearly meant to, to be read alongside the, the divine image. But then there's a, a, another poem in Songs of Experience entitled The Human Abstract which seems to pick up on at least some of the vocabulary of the Song of, Song of Innocence divine image as well. So uh, the divine image in Songs of Innocence, to mercy, pity, peace, and love all pray in their distress, and to these virtues of delight return their thankfulness. For mercy, pity, peace, and love is God our Father dear, and mercy, pity, peace, and love is man his child and care. For mercy has a human heart, pity a human face, and love the human form divine, and peace the human dress. So, now I I could read this and 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 make the incarnational move with it. Um, Say these are that the the image of God in in humanity. Um. Well, that that the image the image of God manifest in humanity is is in these qualities of mercy and peace and love, which are from God the Father. Um, we could also make the incarnational move and say that you know when when the image of God, um, you know the Son who is the express image and likeness, uh, takes on flesh, that we see that same mercy, pity, peace, and love in that face. But then he makes this move. Uh, in the In the fourth stanza, then every man of every clime that prays in his distress prays to the human form divine love, mercy, pity, peace, and all must love the human form in heathen Turk or Jew, where mercy, love, and pity dwell their God is dwelling too, so maybe the incarnational move that I feel inclined towards in the in you know in the first three stanzas of the poem actually that's not the direction that he takes it at the end it's not god in flesh in christ but it's these divine these divine virtues in some way encoded into our form itself and then if you see the human form whether in heathen Turk or Jew those who who you know the 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 civilized christian of his day will look upon as uh defective in some sense ethically as well as ethnically um, but they have the human form, and therefore they have mercy peace and uh, they have mercy, love, and pity, and so God dwells with them too, and so yeah so where wherever you see the human form, you also see the form of God um and it's this it's this illusion of the of of the physical of the visible physical form a human face a human dress with uh moral um or virtue um, as an image it's kind of uh, yeah it's 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 kind of difficult to deal with so that's that's the divine image um also too i think it's one of the reasons why when even though his poems are full of naked people it doesn't it never feels like he's just interested in anatomy he right. can draw he can draw a naked person and make it and make you feel as if he's drawing their soul because he doesn't seem to see them as different things um in songs of experience a divine image cruelty has a human heart and Jealousy, a human face; terror, the human form divine, and secrecy, the human dress. The human dress is a forged iron. The human for, form, a fiery forge. The human face, a furnace sealed. The human heart, its hungry gorge. So here, the human form representing not not for virtues, but uh, for manifestly bad characteristics: cruelty, jealousy, the terror, and secrecy. You know, it's a it's a, it's an image of even a different god because it's still mm-hmm. called a divine Im- image not the divine image but a divine image which it makes me feel like i'm in the tiger poem again right uh because oh we've got, sure
3: sure we got the blacksmith yeah. image
0: exactly exactly and we're like okay where does this image come from it's a divine image but which one you know what dread hand <laughs> um the third one that I think is, is also in conversation with these, the human abstract uh, says pity would be no more if we did not make somebody poor and mercy no more could be if all were as happy as we and mutual fear brings peace till the selfish loves increase. Then cruelty knits a snare and spreads his baits with care. And it continues on from there. But, we have this this book there this poem The Human Abstract picking up on the mercy, the pity, and the peace and the love from the divine image and songs of innocence, but then each of these becomes twisted. Pity would be no more if we did not make some somebody poor. Right. Mm-hmm. There 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 it's it's a it's a twisting of this of, of of the image from the first poem. And then at the end of it uh, soon spreads the dismal shade of mystery over his head, and the caterpillar and fly feed on the mystery, and it bears the fruit of the seed, ruddy and sweet to eat. And then the god, the the last stands of the gods of the earth and sea, sought through nature to find this tree, but their search was all in vain. There grows one in the human brain. So it's this. This the the divine image turned towards evil that ends up growing into this fruit of mystery. Mystery being one of uh, secrecy being one of the words in a divine image. And this thing that grows out of the human brain being uh, this this tree of evil growing in our minds as as virtue turns to turns to vice.
1: That connects all the poems with a poison tree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which is another famous one from Songs of Experience, but a yeah. guy who plants a grudge and it ends up he ends up killing himself with it.
3: Uh-huh. Right, right. And I mean, it brings to mind the the saying of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke. You know, those who hold power over you call themselves your benefactors. Uh, yeah. And I mean, it, it definitely casts a a shadow over that you know image of you know pity that is a sort of unqualified virtue in the Songs of Innocence.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I it, I have a hard time not seeing them as related to each other, but that's mainly I I don't know if I don't know if I'm if if Blake is so much wanting me to read the human abstract alongside of the two divine image poems, or it's that he he just kind of keeps coming back to the same wells of <laughs> of of imagery and theme. Mm-hmm. He's got the particular topics he's interested in, so whenever he picks them up, he's going to say comparable things when he, when he does so. But
3: Right, although, I mean, the, the first stanzas of the human abstract, I mean, you've got in sequence pity, mercy, peace, and love. So, I mean, how could mm-hmm. it not be in
0: conversation? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Okay, okay, good. So I'm not a crazy person. You're not no, a crazy no. person. And, yeah, yeah.
1: I, 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 don't, I don't think I would immediately think anybody who said any two random poems in these two collections are connected was crazy because <laughs> there's so many, there's so many subterranean passageways between them.
0: Yeah, right.
1: And in some cases, overland passes too.
2: Mm.
0: <laughs> but here we've actually got overt. um We've actually got overt diction. diction. That's mm-hmm. that's making it happen. Oh, absolutely,
3: yeah, yeah. <laughs> if, if you didn't read these poems in connection, you'd be doing something wrong. Right.
1: <laughs> and, you know, and and almost every poem in Innocence has a corresponding poem in Experience that, that's right. very blatant. Mm-hmm.
3: mm-hmm. And
1: then some that were originally published in Innocence end up being republished in Experience. Little right. Girl little girl Lost and Little Girl Found are both originally in Innocence, and then they get moved to Experience, where they make much more sense to me just in terms of tone, because th- mm-hmm. those are a couple of poems that really have that heavy prophetic language to them in a way that most of the Innocence poems do not.
3: Right, mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Well,
1: Obviously, we're not going to come even close to talking about everything that's interesting in these two books. There's just too much to talk about. But uh, as we close for the week, let's go around the horn and talk about a poem or two that appeals to each of us. Uh, Nathan, you go first, then you can just pass it on to David.
3: Very good. Uh, The poem I want to talk about is in Songs of Experience. Uh, It is The Garden of Love and all It's another short one, so I'll just read it relatively quickly. Uh, I went to the Garden of Love and saw what I never had seen. A chapel was built in the midst where I used to play on the green, and the gates of this chapel were shut, and thou shalt not rid over the door. So I turned to the the garden of love that so many sweet flowers bore, and I saw it was filled with graves and tombstones where flowers should be, and priests in black gowns were walking their rounds and binding with briars my joys and desires.' uh and i i i picked that one up just because uh although we've got this definite prophetic strain to it although we've got a uh a strong sense that divine realities are always connected to what's going on here uh this is you know one of those very enlightenment flavored suspicions of the established church <laughs> yeah. uh, so i mean you know I, and and it it's not subtle at all you know i mean what used to be Love, flowers, and goodness is now, you know, chapels and tombstones. And in fact, not only are weeds growing, but the priests are using the weeds to tie off the flowers so they don't grow. Oof.
1: Can't we all just love each other, man?
3: That's right. That's right. Hey, what if I told you that Jesus hates religion?
1: (laughs) Imagine there's no heaven.
3: (laughs) David, save us from this silliness.
0: Oof. Um, well, one that one that I would certainly recommend is is, is 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 if you're uncertain whether the the first chimney sweeper is taking you in a in a kind of dark religion as the opiate of the masses direction, then the songs of experience, the chimney sweeper. Um, well, yeah, at the end of it, I I am happy and dance and thing sing and think they have done me no injury and are gone to praise God and His priest and king who made up a heck. Ha- heaven of our misery, um, yeah. The, you know, in the songs of experience, the 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 religion angle is definitely uh, played again. And here it's not. Here it's not a good thing. Um, I'd point you to uh, Little Girl Lost, which uh, which 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 we did mention uh, earlier as as a poem that had shifted back and forth between books. Um, the little girl lost and little girl found because it's, well, it's amazingly interesting, uh, to me because the little girl of the poem who, who gets lost, um, she is found, but she's found by lions and the, and taken back to, taken back to the den of lions. Um, it's, uh, really kind of terrifying. And I wonder if there's something in her name too. Her name is Lyca in L L Y C A. And I, I wondered if that had something to do with, um, the Greek word for wolf. Um, like in, uh, well, like we have in the word lycanthrope. Um, if if mm-hmm. we were meant to see something in her name, there, I mean, surely that's not an accident. And there were just all these little girls named Lyca yeah, running gonna, around London. I
2: was gonna say it's a it's a good
1: bet that we're meant to see something in it. Although what it is 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 <laughs> is uh, your guess is as good as mine.
0: Yeah. Well, in in the second one, um, the little girl found um, her. You know, her parents go and look for her, and in the end. Uh, instead of finding the little girl among the among the the wild cats and taking her back to civilization, um, apparently she de- they decide to just kind of stay with the tigers, <laughs> and so you know in, instead of uh, rescuing her from the wildness and refer- returning to civilization, uh, they 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 seem to decide to stay with her. Um, well one, I,
1: one way blake is a romantic is he does not tend to think that civilization is better than wilderness
0: right right and and it was nice to have have at least some friendly tigers <laughs> <laughs> in here somewhere but there's this one particular bit in little girl found um the the parents are looking for her and they look upon uh this this lion's eyes they look upon his eyes filled with deep surprise and wondering behold a spirit armed in gold on his head a crown and on his shoulders down flowed his golden hair so it's as if they encounter a lion and then it's like they see the spirit of the lion which for Blake actually kind of makes sense because in that that visionary portraits series that I was telling you guys about he has his ghost of the flea picture apparently he has this idea that animals that the, that the spirits of animals can have this angelic or demonic aura that kind of communicates It's what the animal means in some way, so that when they see the lion's spirit manifest, they see it as this um, this crowned and kingly figure. Um, That's that's pretty neat. I wonder if C.S. Lewis had been reading this when he came up with Aslan.
1: You got to wonder. You don't hear him talk about Blake very much.
0: I can't think of a mention of Blake in his in his stuff. Mm-hmm. It's probably there, know. and we're probably going to get about half a dozen emails <laughs> telling us where, but I can't remember it.
1: That's why I made sure to throw in the fact um, that Blake was a nudist, because I knew if I didn't, we would get that email.
0: <laughs>
1: Especially since we made fun of the Christian naturists last week.
0: swell <laughs> he, he could, yeah, yeah, Blake could start the Swedenborgian naturist podcast. <laughs>
1: I want to talk about What may be the polar opposite Of Little Girl Found There you, you, you uh, Find your salvation By going out Into the wilderness And by the way Since I mentioned Chris Christopherson earlier Bears mentioning He, often, he also has a song Called Little Girl Lost That is considerably grosser uh, And sweatier And chest hairier Than uh, the Blake poem
2: See the little girl lost Walking through this world alone She ain't looking for a lover, she's just looking for a home. <laughs>
0: <laughs> if you ever heard it, you know just
1: what I mean. Um, I'm going to talk about the poem London, which is really where Blake's dislike of the coming industrial revolution reaches its peak. Uh, it's not too long, so I'll just read it. I wander through each chartered street near where the chartered Thames does flow, and mark in every face I meet marks of weakness, marks of woe, in every cry of every man, in every infant's cry of fear, in every voice, in every band, the mine forged manacles I hear how the chimney-sweepers' cry, every blackening church appals, and the hapless soldier's sigh runs in blood down palace walls. But most through midnight streets, I hear how the youthful harlots curse. Blast the newborn infant's tear, and blights with plagues the marriage hearse. Uh, again, not subtle, right? Uh, yeah. you, 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 you have here the, the modern city in London. How, was the biggest city in Europe in 1794, is that correct? It's one of the biggest, even if it wasn't the biggest. Um, and, and we see it as just a, an unbelievable place of death, right? Every man is, is unhappy. Every infant is unhappy. Uh, everybody is is bound by manacles that they forged in their own minds. Man, uh, <laughs> you have the church and the state alike polluted by the things that are happening in the city, be they the, the wars that the soldiers are training for, the chimney sweepers whose uh, plight Blake has gone over in greater detail elsewhere and even children who throughout songs of innocence and through most of songs of experience are these these creatures to be admired or pitied or befriended even even they have been cursed here by these harlots the youthful harlots curse blast the newborn infant's tear mm-hmm. so so i mean all human connection is gone at this point london is a place where human beings are not able to come together in spiritually Edifying ways. Mm
0: -hmm. That's a cheery note to end on. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And on that bleak, Blake note, (laughs) what are
1: we talking about next week, Mason?
3: Well, here recently, uh, within the last week and a half, I'm going to say the, one of the pioneers of magical realism, uh, Gabriel, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. There we go. Passed away. So, Uh, In honor of him, we're going to do two of his sort of standard intro to literature anthology pieces, A Very Old Man with Enormous Wings and The Handsomest Drowned Man in the World.
1: Hmm. Sounds fun. So, listeners, if you would like to read along... Those stories are uh, probably easily available online. Maybe I'll try to find a link and post them to the Facebook page.
3: Yeah, it sounds like an idea.
1: Until next week, uh, this is well, – I guess I should say how you should get in touch with us, shouldn't I? You can email <laughs> us at thechristianhumanist@gmail.com. at gmail.com. You can go to our website, which is christianhumanist.org. We have a Facebook page. Um, yeah, like us there. Talk to us. Uh, tell us how many things about Blake we left out. Uh, until next week, this is Michael Farmer for Nathan Gilmore and David Grove saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger.
2: A child floating down on a cloud in the sky Said, sing me a song about a land So I sang and he smiled so I sang again As he placed a reed in my hand And with my rural pen I stained the water clear Wrote this song for every little child